0: Amazon bestselling author, Troy L. Love.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Finding Peace podcast. I'm really excited to spend the next little while with you. I have a special guest who will be joining me, and I'm going to be introducing her in just a moment. But before we do so, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about the upcoming Finding Peace retreat that's going to be held in Prescott, Arizona. We had to cancel the last two Finding Peace retreats because of COVID. We were getting ready to host the next one in March of last year, and then everything kind of collapsed all around us. We scheduled another one in September, hoping that the epidemic would have been calmed down by then, and obviously it didn't. So we really decided whether or not we were going to do the Finding Peace retreat again this year. We recognize that the CDC is recommending that people who are at risk not get into larger groups. We are going to be doing everything in our power to to keep everyone safe. Uh, because we're doing it up in Prescott, it's beautiful. A lot of what we'll be doing at the retreat, then will be outdoors as much as possible so that people will be able to enjoy being in the outdoor sunshine, beautiful scenery that's in Prescott, Arizona. I'd like to play just a little clip from one of the previous participants, Philip, as he shares what his experience was like at the Finding Peace Retreat. And then you can learn more about the Finding Peace Retreat by going to TroyLLove.com.
2: Hello, my name is Philip Sastar. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I, uh, I came to the Finding Peace Retreat Uh, From our friend's recommendation, um, I have struggled with self-worth value, um, just not believing in myself, not having a very strong self-worth, and through this four-day intensive, uh, was taken through a number of exercises that helped me to understand just how valuable I am, um, that I'm not alone in my life, that uh, we all make mistakes, and that... uh, We are all beautifully broken, and we can be healed and helped. And so I highly recommend this retreat and Troy Love.
1: If you'd like to join us at the Finding Peace retreat, again, go to troyllove.com for more information. I'd like to introduce you to Elizabeth Power, She is the CEO of ePower and Associates, and I have to tell you, she is a delightful individual. You're going to hear her amazing story as I had the opportunity to interview her. Elizabeth is a sought-after speaker, facilitator, teacher, and consultant. All she does is help people with change, resilience, and self-care. That's exactly what we do here at the Finding Peace podcast and she does it from the trauma-informed lens the trauma-informed perspective and i think you're going to love hearing her story so please join me in welcoming elizabeth power i have with me an amazing individual elizabeth power and i am so humbled that she would be willing to spend some time with me you're going to get to know Her a little bit more as we do this podcast and Elizabeth has some great experience with trauma informed care and helping people change their lives and. If you've been listening to the podcast for a little while you know that that's what finding peace is all about trying to help people change their lives Mm -hmm. so Elizabeth I am so honored and grateful that you'd be willing to hang out with me for a little while.
2: Oh, Troy, you're just the best. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure and delight to get to help people find peace. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to sit with you on this podcast is because I think if there's anything I wish we could do, I mean, yeah, I'm an old hippie. World peace. It's important.
1: Right. It, <laughs> it starts is. with
2: individuals. It does. <laughs> it's not world peace either. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> well thank
1: you can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in in the world of transformation and trauma informed care
2: Mm -mm -mm. yeah buddy i sure can trying to make my own life make sense uh you know i think i think almost every one of us who ends up in the world of the helping professions whether it's education or counseling we're almost always working on something in ourselves that we hope we can also heal and correct in the work we do. And for me, that's it's the same story, although I've taken a different bent or a different twist with it.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. I can, If, as listeners to the podcast attest, uh, I talk a lot about the importance of doing our own work, but the whole reason why I'm here is because I have that similar journey of having to discover how to recover from, traumatic experiences and find mm-hmm. greater peace so can you tell us a little bit more about that journey what that looked like well, for sure.
2: You? sure 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 i'm happy to um i think the first thing i want your audience to know is that when we talk about things that overwhelm people those events we call traumatic um, it's much more important to look at the impact than it is at the name of the event mm-hmm. um i remember a long back about oh god you know i'm an old toot Let's see, the diagnosis of PTSD was a blessing when it hit the books in 81 or 82. And I was working with a social worker at the time who had the good sense to know what she was looking at. And stamp, there went that one. And let's let's start with those because um, it was, we all think the first thing we think, partly because of the way language has evolved is we think about abuse and neglect when we think about trauma. We miss that anything that so overwhelms anybody, regardless whether they're really short or really tall, that they can't cope is what the brain processes is traumatic. And for me, I remember arguing for my own health, which is a hard thing to do in a clinical setting, because then you run into clinicians' beliefs and their prejudices and, and the clinical illusion and all of those things. But everybody kept saying, you must have been sexually abused to have this. I'm like going, well, yeah, later on, but I don't think that's the beginning. I think you're, I think you're looking at an effect rather than at a cause. And I mm. and I, it's like I had to really fight for my own health there, because most of the things that were the real root cause of the challenges I faced, were things that were very ordinary for the times. Back in the fifties, as now, uh, when young men got out of the military, it was far more young men than young women then. They would get a job, the boss would promote them, and they would have to move. And that was simply the way it was. And so we moved a great deal before I was two. Your clinical head should be going, attachment, because that's a good place to head. Now, again, we think of people who have difficulties with connecting with other people as having had issues with abuse and neglect. There were no perpetrators in that that moment. Then my father died of cancer before I was three. Again, there are no perpetrators there, but this prompted my mother to have to move back to rural Western North Carolina, where she wasn't really exactly welcome or necessarily wanted because when kids left the farm, they didn't exactly get welcomed home when they came back and mercy. She had red fingernails in Appalachia and this just did not work well. Mm. Um, then i had rare diseases which put me on phenobarb for like six weeks and i was out of my body on a regular basis Mm. probably the greatest relief i ever had and then i developed an orthopedic disability that was congenital that caused my knees and my hips and my shoulders every major joint dislocates i can sneeze and throw body parts around the room brother
1: oh my goodness
2: but as a child when i finally was able to look at it from everybody else's point of view they all held their breath around me because they weren't certain when I was going to fall on the floor screaming because a kneecap was out of place. Hmm. So you got to understand now it could have been homelessness. It could have been natural disaster. It could have been other medical crises. It could have been, could have been, could have been. And, and those things all set me up because they made me invisible to adults, which Hmm. meant I was the perfect prey for every predator. Hmm. But you don't solve these issues by looking at at the perfect prey for every predator. You solve them by looking backwards and see, where did I get stalled out developmentally? And this was something that I had to fight for in my own healing.
1: Yeah, one of the the premise of the work that I do, I call them attachment wounds. And Mm -hmm. you identify two of them, abandonment and abuse, but loss is the first one.
2: Mm-hmm. And, yeah.
1: and everything you just talked about, there are no perpetrators with that wound. It's no. it's just the part of life that yeah. is difficult, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. And it's not.
2: That's correct. It doesn't mean that it doesn't cause you, you know, again, your developmental age. I was like two and a half when my father died. So, of course, I thought I was responsible for his death for about 35 years. I mean, right. <laughs> that's what kids that age do. And so pathologizing what is normal became an issue because I saw so much effort spent on making me sick Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and not much effort on helping me get quote better. And I remember the day that I said, if I were better, how would my life different be different? And I don't think this is a question that gets asked often enough. Mm -hmm. If I were better, how would my life be different? And I realized, well, I'd still be making a living. I'd have friends that last friendships that lasted a long time. Um, I would be able to tolerate the discomfort of my own life as I waddle through it. Because that's one thing we don't develop a lot is the ability to tolerate discomfort, mm-hmm. which is necessary in all of life. I've never seen a baby that came out and said, ooh, 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 let me go back in and do that again. Wow, that was fun. <laughs> 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 and I'm pretty sure that the that the caterpillar that turns into goo inside the cocoon doesn't think too much of that when they emerge a butterfly if they remember it. Right. Um, so I began very early on, long before trauma informed care was ever a phrase, to say to people, if you don't like what I've become, then you need to not like what happened to me, the ordinary things and the extraordinary things. Oh, I love that. Uh, because that, and I actually had the nerve to say that on Montel Williams back in 92. Because back in 90, after about 13 people died in my life at one time, and I'd become sort of a public figure talking about helping people cope with change um, in the corporate world, I was diagnosed with multiple personality disorders, as it was called back then. Mm -hmm. And it was a perfect, it was a perfectly appropriate diagnosis, but it's not one I expected. But, you know, growing up in the South, we believe in eccentricity. And we have a lot of different models for a lot of different things. And I thought, well, you know, okay, this is not what I expected. Meet new people, make new friends. I've had all this help all this time. How can I help these parts of me that have been so useful and necessary heal at the same time I go forward in my life?
0: Mm.
2: And, you know, and I grew up in the Episcopal church and I was a big, I, I understand the Trinity. So it was like, okay. If the trinity works for creator why doesn't why doesn't it work for me
1: that's and yeah
2: and i began to look at let's look at the functional elements here which are if the communication amongst the different parts of the self is harmonious if there's not if if you have an absence of excess conflict and then that's that's a good thing if you have x if you have the absence of excess personalization of one straight state over the other well that's functional And if you have an age appropriate level of sharing of information across states, that's functional. So I said, look, if I'm functional, what's your problem? And I basically kind of like the mouse um, performing the last great act of defiance against the Hawk, continued to work, was never hospitalized, got my master's degree at Vanderbilt in the process, quadrupled my income and kind of said, let's take a look at this phenomenon. Can this phenot—can you have this and not be crazy? The answer is yes. Absolutely. Now, I don't think I'm able to be diagnosed with much of anything anymore, except maybe COVID stress. And <laughs> sometimes my PTS gets a little di if I'm locked in the house too long. But, you know, it was a remarkable experience. I wouldn't have volunteered for it. But since I found myself there, it seemed like, well, make something out of it.
1: I I love that. That's that magic wand questions that sometimes I ask my clients. If I had magic wand, it could change mm-hmm. one thing in your life. What would be different about you? And then mm-hmm. I say, you know, it's not the bad things that have happened to you. It's the stories we've wrapped ourselves up with about oh, those yeah. things. If we can change the story, it's different. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you do.
2: Preach it, brother. Change the story. Change your life. Absolutely. You know, I arrived in Nashville in 1979 as a shoe repairer. I've got great stories about that. I put rattlesnake toes on Alabama's boots, and I fixed Minnie Pearl's little blue uh, overnight case, and I fixed Oprah Winfrey shoes. You know, I mean, it was oh the shop goodness. I worked in, and I was very good at it. Um, and I thought that was all I could do because I had convinced myself that I was stupid because mm-hmm. I couldn't do math.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And for some reason, the story that I told myself was if I can't even balance a checkbook, how can I possibly hold a reasonable job? You know, and and when I begin to help people look at the stories they tell themselves and begin to say, well, how might that have been a strength?
1: Right. That my
2: inability to work with numbers effectively back then meant that I became extremely overdeveloped in the area of words that's okay i've made a grand living for the last 30 years doing instructional systems design and transformational change work right i decided about three months ago yeah i think i can read numbers again now you know and (laughs) i'm reading (laughs) that's so wonderful this is beautiful thank you
1: you said uh, a few minutes ago that you had to fight for your own
2: health care or oh, you had to God. fight can you say more about that i will please 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 try not to be offended it's 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 a it's a hard thing to say there are some there are many many clinicians and i fired a bunch of them who are more invested in the models that they paid an awful lot of money to learn and that's important to understand every clinician who goes through training learns a certain models and certain ways of thinking that are associated with their profession um, part of that means expecting your nice job is your young attractive verbal intelligent usually white client but in order there is no matter how you cut it an, an underlayment of of the economy in mental health care for example and i hate to say this you can't make a living if people don't need you just like I can't make a living if people don't need me. That one simple fact means that there's at a very unconscious level, some resistance to people getting better, because if they get better, then you have to change clients. And you have to do all of that work to get back to the same place again to be able to do the really deep work that needs to be done. Hmm. There are a couple of issues with that. Um, One is that it, it automatically supposes that people with very different histories who might have the same diagnosis react the very same way to the very same stuff. I had to argue with that there's the phenomenon that's been researched, it's called the clinical illusion. It says that if you have seen people with, for example, dissociative disorders that, you know, the name got changed to DID a while back. So if you see people with, who, are, who have DID, you have an expectation of how they behave and how they look and how they function, and how they act. And if you've been seeing people who are having a really, really hard time, the time when somebody comes in like me who's doing, I'm doing okay, I need to do some work on some stuff, but I'm, I'm okay here. You can't believe that. You can't believe that they're doing that well because they don't fit your expectation based on the people you've already seen. So for people who work with folks with schizophrenia or psychosis or other, other manifestations of great challenges in their lives, if they don't fit the, re- the requirement, The clinical world assumes that they are even sicker than they said they were or Mm -hmm. that they're in denial. There's even a term that we use to describe people who refuse to take their medicine because they don't have adequate insight. But here's the challenge. We don't say that about diabetics or people who are hypertensive who won't take their medication. So the double standard insists that we be ill when in fact we may have a great deal of health. I promise you. If there's a natural disaster or a terrorist attack in this country, the people with the longest, most most profound histories of chronic issues that have caused them to seek support will know what to do, but not everybody else. Right, amen. They amen. know the support systems. So, you know, getting people to let me be healthy. I remember um, a time when somebody said, well, "Maybe you need to live live in a group home," and I just I said, "That'll be the day when it freezes over. That'll be the day." <laughs> <You know? laughs> And, uh, but again, if you are desperate for relationship, if you haven't much success and if the self is not, if you have a sense of self that is injured, it's sometimes easier to take what other people tell you, you must be and incorporate that than it is to fight for your own health. You have to be willing to be labeled non-compliant, treatment resistant. I've been told I was too sick to get better. I've been told I didn't want to get better. And you have to be willing to fight those things now it would be easy for me to go off of, on the clinicians who said those things and i also know as much as i resent the behavior they too were doing the best they could
1: mm-hmm.
2: but i'm not sure some of them had the business heading business being in the business no <laughs> you know so that's what i mean
1: i'm sad that you had to go through that
2: uh, it's all right it helped me get to here you know and that's the whole thing is I had the good sense not to believe the lies. That was the mm-hmm. most important thing. You
1: know? Yeah, those stories, I tell you, the stories get pounded into our heads. and so hard to rewrite that narrative.
2: Yes, and I think it's a real challenge for clinicians and clients both and for ev- anybody, if you've never even seen a therapist and you decide to change your story. I have to tell you, it's it's a matter of little choice by little choice, stacked on top choice on top of choice, on top of choice just making the choices over and over and over again and if you find yourself away from a choice that's important to you going back to it right it's stacking choices
1: one of the questions a lot of people ask me is how do you rewrite those stories how do you do that and i'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or how you answer that question when people ask that
2: um I ask people when they say, how did you rewrite your story? I say, well, how comfortable are you being uncomfortable? Mm. Because anytime that you go through change, we know that all trauma is change, but not all change is traumatic. And when you look at the simple dynamics of how change affects us, you know, it feels pretty yucky. I remember the very first time I sat down in front of a computer and it was a, a black and an amber screen and. Every time I hit the wrong button and go, you know, and I would think, oh, my God, I'm going to die. You know, I'm too stupid (laughs) to live, you know, and I would shrink down in my seat and I would go. Um, And in reality, all I was doing was learning a new skill, but I Mm. felt angry and irritated and frustrated and deficient and defective and frightened um, and all of those negative things that we feel with change. If you're going to rewrite your story, getting comfortable with those as markers of change is the first step. Mm to realize just because these are the feelings doesn't mean they're the facts. All I was doing was learning a new skill. That was the fact. And in truth, the first time I stood up to a clinician and said, I don't think so, which was probably developmentally appropriate for me in terms of my healing. I thought I was going to die. Mm. I, I already figured, Oh, can't do that. You know, and now I teach clinicians. Isn't that interesting? Um, <laughs> but learning to recognize that it's easier to get stuck in the things that we miss, the pity, the sympathy, the comfort, the attention, the care that comes with being in failure. That's, that's, we all have a need for those things, certainly for the sympathy and the comfort and the attention. Um, and when we get used to those coming as a result of being victims and living out the victim personality um, or being injured or being less than, almost like a dog rolling over to show us its belly we miss out on the self-respect and the self-esteem and the responsibility and the access we can have but to get to those states those positive benefits of the success we create we have to go through change and it still feels really really weird Uh, so getting used to being comfortable in discomfort is the first thing and i think the next thing is is recognizing what is the life you want you know i wanted to own a home i wanted to have successful employment i wanted to make a difference in the world i was in because i saw early on that the real goal is to reduce the time and the trauma and the cost of healing for everybody clinicians and clients and um, looking at how does change play into that became a big issue for me and so I, I leveraged changed change to realize i'm really good at a lot of things I'm really good at writing. I'm really good at teaching. Now, I'm going to become a teacher.
0: Mm.
2: And the first time I thought about that, I'm like going, oh, my God, no. My mother was a teacher. My sister was a teacher. I'd rather be nibbled to death by ducks than teach for a living. (laughs) (laughs) And when I realized I love to help people learn, Mm. that's what I love. Then I was comfortable becoming an educator.
1: And speaking of that, you wrote a, uh, you've, I've, I'm sure you've written more than one book. You just, you wrote a recent book. Can you yeah, tell us a little bit
2: about that? I can, I can. Look, there's never going to be enough clinicians in the world for the people who need to be supported. Over 24 million prescriptions for sertraline got written in 2018. Half of those could have probably done with therapy or counseling and exercise, but there'll never be enough people to see people twice a month. If you just take 12 billion of those. Right. And so I, I crosswalked social emotional learning skills, which is what we teach kids with emotional intelligence, which are the same skills. And we surveyed 4,000 clinicians online last year and said, how would it be, how, what would happen to your work with people if they came in with higher levels of these self-awareness, self you know, all of this, those skills and it was universally it'd be much easier. Um, duh. So I began to look at how can I create the tools that can come with increasing your emotional intelligence and de- and strengthening the self. It's cohorts work on the self capacities and basically and uh, bridged and so now write about emotional intelligence through a trauma-informed lens hmm. so that people can access the content without having to own uh, being clients or the stigma of seeking mental health care, but can actually look at look, if I mastered these skills, then it will help me at work and it will help me at home. So we talk about managing feelings and how you do that, some ways to learn to do that. we talk about those inner connections we have to others that we can use. And so it's, it's an easy read. People like it. It's the first in a series of five. Um, And it's been a lot of fun to work with.
1: What is one of the key principles that people could take away from to help them manage their emotions?
2: wow i'll tell you the one that's been most useful for to me today i've been dealing with some stuff with, with bookkeeping um the number stuff there's that thread right <laughs> <laughs> And when i when i find my anxiety rising because i'm dealing with something mathematical and i hear myself saying but i don't do numbers i can't i can't add and subtract and divide and multiply I think wait a minute. You wrote a paper in college on the relationship between the Fibonacci formula and Pascal's triangle as evidence of determinism in nature. You have a black belt. You are a six sigma black belt. What is the, how does it help you to believe that?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I and I don't say you know how can you lie, but it's how does it help me to believe that I can't do those things? It keeps me from dealing with the anxiety that rises when I look at numbers. These interconnections are key, Troy. Let me ask you a question. On your cell phone, do you have pictures of people and things that you love or hate?
1: People I love, things I love. Uh-huh.
2: And, and when you're feeling stressed, do you ever pull out your cell phone and look at those pictures? Yeah. And does it make you feel better? Yes. There you go. So beginning to catalog all of the connections that we have that we can use to help us self-soothe, even though the way we might do that today is different than we did when I was a child is still very valuable mm. family recipes i'll bet you've got one i bet have a couple i do imagine having a potluck with people who bring their favorite family recipes mm. and everybody tells the stories mm. you know those interconnections that we can call on when we soothe are present even for us in the worst of times um i, I would say that victor frankl capitalized on them Oh, absolutely. tremendously
1: absolutely
2: uh, the songs, the playlists, the clothes that we wear because there's something somebody gave us, the jewelry we have that, some, that we... some. I mean, yeah, okay, that big rock that you got in the D-I-V-O-R-C-E, you might wear that just because you got the big rock. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> what are the everyday reminders that we have? Uh, yeah. Transitional objects in social work theory, but interconnections in self-psychology.
1: That's so beautiful. That is absolutely one of the primary things about finding peace, I tell people we're wired for connection. And yeah,
2: dude. Yeah.
1: We are wired. So how can we foster those connections, remind ourselves of those connections, build those connections? Mm. Beautiful.
2: It's Here's an example. Your first name is Troy. I have a cousin named Troy Cannon that I hadn't thought of in years when I saw your name. Mm. I wonder how Troy's doing. I can go out and look up and see if Troy's on this side or the other. We had a band director named Mr. Love. So when I look, when I, when I connected with you automatically, my brain began to go back to these connections mm. so that beautiful. are positive.
1: Yeah, yeah, so beautiful.
2: It's easy. You don't have to pay $65 now to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: wish that more people knew that skill though.
2: That's I a... why I did this. We've got to get these skills out because if imagine that I came to you and I'm, and I don't have these skills. We have to start from such a different place. Right. But if I have some of these skills, if I've expanded myself so that I can tolerate, you know, it's like, I, if I come to you only able to hold three ounces of glasses cleaner, and I need to be able to hold 33 ounces, I'm in trouble. Hmm. Because every time this every time my cup runs over, I'm going to dereg, I'm going to be dysregulated, I'm going to be freaked out, I can't think I can't function. So strengthening the self is the key work. That's so important to make it easier for everybody. We don't have evidence-based protocols are sweet, but they, they are often used at the expense of relationship. If we're going to degrade the clinical process, so that we don't have the 45 or 50 sessions that we need to really build that deep, deep relationship to do the deep work, we have to help people prepare for doing the deep work with less front and time. Absolutely. And that's what this does.
1: I'm excited to go read it.
2: Ooh, cool! I love it. I love it. Thank you. It's
1: it's beautiful. Uh, the The work that I talk about, I often talk about the shadows of shame, which we don't need to get into. But that those external, but they feel internal messages that say we're not enough and life is awful. And I talk about the way that you combat that is just what you talked about, connecting with my core truth, my core influence my core light and my core mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. connecting with that just blows the shame away and helps me be able to reach out and connect with people so i i'm excited to read more <laughs> about these tools thank you so much for writing you're the book so
2: welcome you're so welcome and there there're more coming the next one i'd surveyed my audience and i said what do you want next do you want re- changing lenses or claiming culture hmm. And so I'm doing uh, changing lenses first, and I expect that'll be out in May or so. But you know, it's it's just time in my life to take the knowledge that I have and to put it into a form that everybody can access in a different way. Um, I've enjoyed teaching. I'm working with Japan on a national model for trauma-informed care that's culturally appropriate right now, Mm. and I've had some real, real wonderful experiences helping folks look at how does my West, how does my European culture contradict or complement indigenous and Afrocentric culture relative to social process. And I think the thing I'm saddest about these days is that in terms of the stereotypical European culture, it's not really healthy competition, individual over others, self over others, and those are the underpinnings of all the theories we have in psychology right now, except Jean Baker Miller's work on relational psychology. And I I just think we have to figure out different ways of being more human with each other and of tending our own and each other's injuries and of helping people develop the skills so that we have less risk of injuring each other. It's generational.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a trip.
1: It's a a beautiful work you're doing, too. Thank you, sir. Yeah.
2: I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't volunteer for it, but when it became obvious it was my job, I decided to show up.
1: I'm so grateful you did. Thank you. Yeah. I am so grateful for the time you were willing to spend with me today and share a little bit of your story. As you were telling me that you you had been diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder i've only met one other person and that person did a similar thing with with that diagnosis as you and figured out how to move on with their life so it's interesting the narrative i have about people who have dissociative it's not the narrative that you would have learned in right. school. it's like you can you can deal with that you can work through it so it's wonderful that you were willing to be vulnerable and share that part of your story and it just to me says we don't have to be entrapped by the stories and the no. stories we tell ourselves and the stories other people tell right, us about right. us, we can we can find our own truth and live it.
2: Well th- we can. And there are some really funny jokes about that. I remember when the DSM five came out and one of my one of my colleagues who's a clinician said, Well, I guess you're a did now. I said, Well, you know what? I might be a did because I got done to, but when I get done, I'll be a done did. <laughs> we we laughed and hooped it up. You know, it's I think, um, do you know Frank Putnam's work on -hmm. state dependent? Go out and look up Frank Putnam, P-U-T-N-A-M. His most recent book on state dependent learning and self is really a remarkable text. There's a large community of people who are plural, the plural community. And what many of us have found is that the, the degree to which the people around us buy into what they expect us to be, which is either functional or dysfunctional, dramatically influences how we function mm-hmm. and those are expectations that need to be shifted by everybody but you know it's a it's a it's an interesting phenomenon i uh the other challenge we have is as with any diagnosis if i say i never had it if i don't if i don't own it and and be comfortable talking about it then i'm in denial or dissociation mm-hmm. so basically the minute you get a diagnosis you're labeled with a stigma badge the rest of your life
1: ah. I that is one of the things I hate the most, and when I'm having somebody inside, I, I have to give them the diagnosis so that we can build their insurance. Right, and, and yet I'm like, I just need you to know that I don't see you as this this label. I see you as a human being. I mm-hmm. hope that you can know that, and I hate it. it it's. I sometimes I've to figure out how in the world can I do that without having to give you a freaking label.
2: Well, that's why I went into education. Hmm. Uh, back in the 90s, my master's degree, I got in 97, and I thought, I'm not willing to label and judge people. If these are the natural consequences of things that happen to folks,
0: mm-hmm.
2: even now we're seeing in schizophrenia and in psychosis that these are predominantly caused by experiences that overwhelm people. Uh, I'm not yeah. saying there's not a biological component, but it's a chicken and egg thing. Mm-hmm. If these are the natural consequences of life as we live it, then what is the reason we're pathologizing the normal? Wow. Ah
1: amen oh uh right there
2: yeah (laughs) you know so and i'll come talk to you anytime you want to talk you know that i appreciate that we have a loyalty statement here that's goes as long as 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 long as if i've got a biscuit you've got half Uh, so just know that i'm here with you oh thank you you're welcome
1: well i love your light i love your gift i i love what you've done with the journey that you've been on and your willingness to share your truth and your insights with us thank you so much for spending some time with me
2: you're deeply welcome and if folks want to get a look at who i am they can crank right out to elizabethpower.com and find me there and they can you can find my work my my book on amazon i will tell you a funny story or on Apple Books, there's a woman named Elizabeth Power, who is a a romance novelist in in the UK. (laughs) Honey, let me tell you. And when I put the book into district, and I knew she was there. Um, I've I've run into her a couple of times before. She's she's very gifted at writing romance novels, but I'm not a steamy writer. And so here's here's my little book on trauma and on 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 you know strengthening yourself and getting your stuff together and making it in a little pile and everything. And underneath it, also by Elizabeth Power, and here steamy romance novels. I'm like, oh <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> uh, is awesome <laughs> oh that's funny Thank live you. laugh and love
1: that's right hey that's part of how we survive this world so isn't it though well elizabeth you are a joy and i am so grateful that you were willing to spend some time with me and so grateful for the work you do and the influence you have in people's lives to help them rewrite those narratives and change. Thank you so much.
2: You're so welcome. And Troy, thank you for what you do because the the challenges you face are many and the work that you do is profound and we need more of it. So thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.
2: Thanks. You too.
0: You've been listening to the Finding Peace podcast. If you loved the show or want to ask a question, Let us know by going to troyllove.com. There, you can also learn about the Finding Peace 5-Day Challenge. Remember to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss the next episode. And if you are listening on iTunes, please give us a 5-star rating. It helps other people find this podcast more easily. Thank you for spending part of your journey with us. Copyright Finding Peace Consulting.